Mark chapter 1, verses 12 and 13. Here, for this is the word of the Lord. The Spirit immediately drove him, that is Jesus, out into the wilderness. And he was in the wilderness forty days, being tempted by Satan. And he was with the wild animals, and the angels were ministering to him. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. There is that old saying that says, to be human is to err. But I would suggest making one adjustment to that saying, and it is, to be human is to be tempted. From the beginning of human existence, man has been tempted. Soon after the first man, Adam, was placed in the Garden of Eden, God formed a woman out of a rib of his side and named her Eve. Eve was then tempted by the serpent, and she sinned. Right after that, Adam was tempted by her, and he sinned. Thus, introducing sin and death into the world. And since then, everything has been on a downward spiral, as you can tell. After this, everyone sins, and now everyone dies. No one can resist temptation because everyone now follows after Adam. You can say everyone is now in Adam as he is now our representative, the representative of the human race. And when we look at the Old Testament, not even the Old Testament saints resisted all temptation. Israel was constantly sinning against God. And then you consider David and his son Solomon and how they fell. In fact, King Solomon said, Surely there is not a righteous man on earth who does good and never sins. We are tempted daily, and we fall into sin daily. Sin is in all of us, because we are all associated with Adam. Even as Christians, as long as we live in this world, our fellowship with God will be clouded with sin, and what we display is often a veneer or a covering of our true condition. That is, speaking of our spiritual growth. Our spiritual growth will only be at its beginning in this life. As we draw our attention to one of the most important events in Scripture, there are many things going on in these short two verses. First, we will see that before Jesus begins his ministry, he is engaged in his first battle. And this battle will be one out of many battles in his ministry in order to win the war. And this war that is going on far exceeds all other wars. It far exceeds and it's more important than any war that has been fought in human history. And this war is a war that man has been fighting since our fall into sin. And so far, man has had little victory in this war. Actually, he has had no victory 
and the little victory that he has had can only be accredited to the one who's fighting this battle in our text this morning. So secondly, we will see what this war is all about. What this war is seeking to overturn by addressing where he goes and what are his surroundings. And then thirdly, we will see the assurance of his victory and how he was not alone in his battle. And this answers the question for us, how can we be assured that we will win this war? So first, what is this battle? And what is the nature of this battle? Uh, Unlike the Gospels of Matthew and Luke, Mark is not about getting, getting into all the details. He is brief. He is constantly moving through the letter to get to the point. That's why the word immediately happens so often throughout his letter. He says the spirit immediately drove him, that is Jesus, out into the wilderness. We find ourselves back in the wilderness where he will be for 40 days, where he would be fasting and where he will be very hungry. But why? For what? Well, during this time, it says that he was being tempted by Satan. Satan is the tempter throughout Scripture. He is the accuser and the arch enemy of God and his people. He is said to be a fallen angel and the ruler of demons, who is, in Paul's words, the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. He is the one who tempted Eve in the garden in the form of a serpent. And since then, he has been leading men away from God to serve him. All men serve him and his purposes, naturally. All men. Against the will of God. What I mean about the will of God is what God has prescribed us to do. So all men serve Satan and what he has prescribed naturally. The only way you do not serve Satan is if you are doing and believing the will of God. What God has prescribed to do and what God has told us to believe. Many people think that they do not serve the will of Satan because they're morally good. But that's wrong-headed. That is false. All men serve Satan. It doesn't matter if you did a ritual or did a dance and sold your soul to the devil or not. If you are not believing what God has told us to believe, you are serving him and his purposes. Now, when we read of the temptations of Jesus in Matthew and Luke, we read of three temptations. But here in Mark, it is suggesting that Jesus was being tempted throughout the entire 40 days. Not just three occurrences. But we'll consider the temptations anyway, because they give us a summary of the type of temptation that Jesus was under. See, the first two, as described in Matthew chapter 4, Satan calls him to question his identity 
as the Son of God. Right after God declared that He was the Son of God. See, He's doing what He did in the beginning when He questioned God's word to Eve. Did God really say? Yes, God really said that Jesus is the Son of God. And then the last temptation, what He does, He tries to replace Jesus as God. Because that is Satan's purpose. Satan wants everyone to worship him, including God. And the funny thing is, this is what all men want as well. All men desire the worship of other men. Not only that, all men want the worship of God. They want God to worship them and their ideas and what they want to do. So first, he tempts Jesus when he is hungry. And he says, if you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. Just as Jesus fed Israel in the wilderness with manna from heaven. He said, you did it for them back then. Why not do it for yourself right now? But Jesus responds, it is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Then he tempts him to use his power at the pinnacle of the temple. If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, He will command his angels concerning you, and on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against stone. You can almost hear the, the, the tempters at the cross saying, If you are the Son of God, come down from the cross. But Jesus responds, again it is written, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Not knowing he was not only speaking of his father, but he was also speaking of himself. Then he finally tempts Jesus with the greatest of sins, and that is to swear his allegiance and to worship him instead of God the Father. But he responds, it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. Now the irony behind these temptations is that these are the same types of temptations that Israel goes through in the wilderness. But they failed and fell into sin time and time again. We see this in Exodus 16 and Deuteronomy 6 through 8. This is the same testing that Adam and Eve went through in the Garden of Eden. And they fell into sin. And then, these are the same types of temptations that we are tempted with on a daily basis, and we fall into sin. It involves hunger for pleasure, thirst for power, and the distortion of worship. He tempted him with natural desires, which could be good in themselves, that would be used For self-glorification. So instead of Jesus being devoted to his father's will. Satan is tempting him to be consumed with himself. And his power. And to use his power for immediate worldly dominance. So that he would not go through suffering. So that he would not go to the cross. 
That is what every human is going through at the moment. That is what every human is tempted with. That is the everyday human struggle that we see on a daily basis, displayed on the news or in politics, whatever it may be, or in our own respective lives. But notice how how Mark doesn't mention this interaction between Satan and Jesus. Instead Instead of getting into the details, he highlights what is really going on behind the scenes of the temptation. As a former professor of mine and mentor, R. Kent Hughes says this at his baptism. He said, heaven opened at his baptism, but now hell has opened. He wants to show us that there is more to it than that interaction. And that these battles will go on throughout the entire letter. It doesn't stop At the temptation. His whole ministry will be spent in this wilderness of sin and death. And he will be binding the strong man who is Satan. And plundering his house of his possessions. In other words, it is a long war to the cross that he will face. And behind the scenes, it is supernatural. It is not just physical temptation. Here, it is a spiritual warfare. I've said in a prior sermon that Jesus was non-confrontational. What I meant by that was he was non-confrontational in the sense of physical warfare. He didn't have to pick up arms and go to war. But he was confrontational. He was engaged in a spiritual Warfare. But this is not what we normally ask when we approach the temptation of Jesus, is it? We have become self-centered in our reading of Scripture. When we read of the temptation in other Gospels, our minds are automatically drawn to ourselves. How does this apply to me, we ask? We read it as a blueprint on how to defeat temptation. Three steps as it were. And it is often preached this way. We tend to read scripture only as it relates to me and my situation. And if it doesn't relate, then we think it doesn't matter. Or it doesn't apply. We have permission to disregard this part of the scripture because it doesn't relate to me. Rather than taking the time to think through why this passage was put here in the first place, we ought to seek who this passage is really about and what the mission is really about. Think about how Satan tempted Jesus. If you are, The Son of God. He doesn't ask us that question when we are being tempted. Because the way that Mark writes the account of the temptation, he is not giving us certain steps about how to defeat temptation. Instead, we ought to consider first, who is Jesus Christ? 
And what makes his temptation different from our own? Well, the difference between our temptation and that of Jesus is that Jesus is the one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. We have sin in us. We are tempted to lie, to steal, to cheat, and to kill because we are all liars, thieves, adulterers, and murderers, even if we haven't committed the sin. But Jesus is the perfect and sinless Son of God, and He has all the power to resist temptation. Because He has all of the resources needed right there. And mind you, He has a divine nature. So this is what is at the forefront here. There is something superhuman going on here. It is about divine power that is at Jesus' disposal. And the supernatural war that is going on is something that man cannot see. It is about the opposing forces behind the temptation and who the true victor is. And this is about the fact that we cannot defeat Satan through worldly means and worldly powers. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, authorities, cosmic powers over this darkness, spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. And when I say battle, don't get confused. I don't mean that Satan actually has a chance. What I mean, battle, it means, well, it describes the tension that Satan started in the Garden of Eden with his rebellion. And that tension goes on even to our day. And in such a battle, the Lord is our refuge and strength, not our methods. Let us remember that. The Lord is our refuge and strength, not our methods. But we ask the question, why? Why did Jesus need to be tempted? Just like He needed to be baptized for us, Jesus needed to be tempted for us. This passage is here to show us God's presence in the wilderness with Jesus. And God is present with us through the wilderness of our own testing in this world. Because notice, it is the Spirit of God that brings him through the testing to prepare him for what is to come. And God is with him. This is a trial that he must go through, similar to when Satan was allowed to tempt Job in order to test his faith. And since it is about Jesus' testing, let us remember it is automatically about us. He didn't have to. Go through temptation for us. He wasn't obligated to us to come down to earth and to go through the wilderness for us. It was out of God's grace, out of His grace. 
And he goes through this testing. And as he goes through this testing, his loss or victory in this battle means your eternal salvation is at stake. This is the most important battle ever fought along with his death. Because if Christ is not victorious, then we would have no hope. Why? Why did he need to be tempted? Because here he is taking our place. He is taking our place. He is representing us and all of the saints that have gone before him in his temptation, including the saints in the wilderness who failed, including Moses who failed. Remember, Moses wasn't victorious, he struck the rock. And God said, now you won't enter the promised land. We are being tempted in many ways and we fall into sin. And for that sin, we deserve everlasting misery. But Jesus is being tempted in every way by Satan. So that none of our falling into sin, even now, will be held against us. And not only that, as the author of Hebrews says, he is now able to sympathize with our weaknesses. And because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. Because here, he is fulfilling his role as our high priest. So that he can guide us as our prophet and empower us as our king. He's fulfilling everything the Old Testament taught. But for what? Now now that we know it is a spiritual battle and a spiritual war, we want to answer secondly, what is the point of the war? What is the goal of this war? What is Jesus seeking to do? What is His mission? Because this is another difference between His temptation and ours. He is on a specific and unique mission that only He can accomplish. Remember where He is. He is in the wilderness. And remember what the wilderness symbolizes. It is a place of testing. It symbolizes desolation, misery, loneliness caused by sin. It is barren and empty. It is a wasteland. It is a place of death. Now think back to where Adam was placed. He was placed in a beautiful green garden where every tree was pleasant to the sight and good for food. It was a place that was thriving and full of life. It was a place of order. It was a place where the animals were formed, named, And tamed by man. He had dominion over the animals. Then man sinned. And he was cast out of that garden. And lost. He was cast out of that garden. And to a certain extent. Man lost 
that dominion and authority. And everything that man touches would eventually become a wilderness wasteland under the domain and authority of Satan. Because as I said, all men serve Satan. And everything he touches becomes waste. The wilderness is now a place of danger and a home for demons. And no longer do we have tamed animals. But it says here that he was with the wild animals. This was put here to give us a picture of the way the world was when Jesus begins his ministry. This is the way the world is now. There is chaos and disorder on every level. Sin permeates and controls everyone's behavior. And it even has its effects on animals. Some of you may know this by first-hand experience. And death reigns over every human life. But Jesus Christ is here to reverse this chaos. He was brought into this wilderness in order to show his triumph over sin, death, and misery. This marks his entire ministry when he seeks to undo the power of Satan over humanity and creation. He has come to undo what Adam had done by sinning against God. He has come to undo the old order of the fall. The irony, of course, is that Adam was given a garden full of life, but he left it as a wilderness of wild animals and desolation for Jesus, who is the author of life. So the history of the world here has come full circle, and Satan is waiting to tempt him. But the good news is, That Jesus, as Paul calls him, Jesus is the last Adam who will face the powers of darkness in order to win the war for his people and win a way back to the tree of life. He will lift the veil from those who have been blinded by Satan. And it is written that when the Messiah comes, the wolf shall dwell with the lamb And the leopard shall lie down with the young goat, and the calf and the lion and the fattened calf together. The tamed animals in this prophecy is speaking of when the Messiah will turn the wilderness into a garden and restore what was lost in Eden. What grace! What amazing grace! The one who deserves all glory and honor and power stooped down from his throne and came to sinners and walked through a wilderness and was tempted amongst wild beasts. We are the ones who deserve the misery of being lost in a wilderness of confusion, which is the making of our own sin. Everything wrong with the world is our fault. And yet the one who is not to blame stooped down and went through horrific suffering for us. Our Creator comes to His fallen creation and lives among us in the flesh, not only for the glory of His Father, but also 
for our sake. He is preparing a way for his people to enter into this new creation, into a garden like we've never seen before. How can we not be moved to live and die for his sake? How can we not walk through our own wilderness wandering with assurance that it is God who is bringing us through it and what He already has accomplished is that He has accomplished victory for our sake. He has accomplished victory through this temptation for us. So the last question we ought to ask is, How can we be assured of this victory? Though we know that in Jesus he has the power of the Son of God to resist Satan. But we also know that in his human nature he can become weak, hungry, weary, and tired. So there are other key characters in this text. Remember, he was not alone in his temptations We knew that God was present with him through the Holy Spirit. But not only was the Holy Spirit there, but it says the angels were there with him. And what were they doing? It says that the angels were ministering to him. The angels were there to serve him as he is God. And to serve him as a man with all the weaknesses known to a fallen body. It is not clear from the text, but it is believed that the ministry of the angels involved protecting him from the dangers of the wilderness, such as the wild animals. It involved divine comfort from his father after a period of testing. Also, just as the angels served Elijah food and drink after he fled from Jezebel in the wilderness, here again, the angels would be serving him food and drink after 40 days of fasting. But what they were doing is not important. Whatever they, they were doing, we know that Jesus Christ lived in, this, lived in this fallen world in human weakness in order to redeem us totally. Yet God was with him. God was with him. Just as the angels are constantly serving God in heaven, they serve Jesus here on earth. They serve him throughout his ministry. And the text that Satan tempted Jesus with was true of him. As it was a promise that is fulfilled here. And it says, For he will command his angels concerning you to guard you in all your ways. On their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. You will tread on the lion and the otter. The young lion and the serpent you will trample underfoot. Remember, he was with the wild animals. And he's going to reclaim his dominion over them. And God promises that during his trial, because he holds fast to me in love, I will deliver him. I will protect him because he knows my name. When he calls to me, I will answer him. I will be with him in trouble. I will rescue him and honor him. With long life I will satisfy him and show him my salvation. This promise is being fulfilled right here in Jesus Christ. 
And this promise is true of us as well. God's presence is with us as we live in this world. When we feel as though He has left us or abandoned us to ourselves and to the dangers of this wilderness, when we feel as though He has left us to deal with our own sins and our past mistakes, this is His assurance that He is with us as well. God's presence is with us as we are being tempted. So more than a three-step guide to defeating temptation, this passage for us is a reassurance that if we are in Christ, we can gain victory over our own temptation, whatever that may be, and that He is with us. Actually, we already have victory over temptation because Jesus was tempted and He was victorious in this battle because He entered into it for us. If we are in Christ, we are no longer in Adam and we are no longer subject to the wiles and tricks of Satan. Yeah, He may tempt us. He may trick us. But the trick's on Him. Because we are no longer bound to Him. He no longer has any say or dominion over us. So the most important question we may ask of ourselves in this text, who are we bound to? Are we bound to this last Adam who is victorious? Or are we bound to the first Adam who wasn't victorious? Do we associate ourselves with Him? Do we trust in His victory over Satan? Not our own victory over Satan. Do you trust in His victory over Satan? Because that is the only way to have victory over Satan. And if we go to Christ, His angels come to us to serve us in our time of need. They will surround us, protect us, and minister to us as they respond to His call. Because He is there interceding for us. And he will demand the angels to come to our aid. Because angels are known as God's emissaries to mediate his presence and protection. And they are sent to serve us. Makes you want to ask, what is man that you are mindful of him and the son of man that you care for him? Yet you have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. You have given him dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen, and also the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens and the fish of the sea, whatever passes along the paths of the seas. He has subjected them all to us. 
Now that text ultimately speaks about Jesus himself. But it will one day be true of us. Angels surround the people of God. Maybe not as a parent. As with Jesus. But they serve the children of God as they serve the purposes of God. And the purpose of God is that we are to be saved from the miseries of this, of this world and our own sin and brought to Him in everlasting fellowship. Jesus says this, just so I tell you, there is joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. Because they were at work as well, surrounding us. And guiding, guiding us and protecting, protecting us. Mediating the presence of God. So what was lost in Adam. Was reclaimed by Christ. And since it has been reclaimed by Christ. We will have a share in it as well. We have victory as well. And there is an even better promise. Than having dominion over wild animals in creation. Paul reminds us. The God of peace. Will soon crush Satan. Under your feet. And all of his tricks and temptations. Will be gone. And then he closes. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. Be with you. Amen. Let us pray.